0: Church, as we wrap up this series on good grief, um, I want to introduce our speaker today because several months ago, we had an opening for a new recovery pastor. And when that happened, I called the national director of Celebrate Recovery, and I, I said this. I said, hey, Bob, who do you got? Who's the best guy out there? Because we really do want the best here. And he says, hey, I got this guy, Drew Chakitis over in Seattle. A- and we knew of Drew before this. And so I made a call to Drew. (laughs) Go figure. He's like, yeah, I'm interested. And because he he knows Valley Real Life and the ministry here. And church, um, he's finally here. His wife, they unloaded trucks yesterday. His wife, he'll tell you a little bit about that. But we are so excited about where our recovery ministries are going. And we have awesome leadership uh, over it. And so why don't you give... The real, I, I've seen you cheer at Gonzaga Games. Hey, let's give it up for Drew Chikaitis.
1: Thanks, man. Thanks. Let me say it's been, it's really good to be here among my forever family members here at Valley Real Life. I'm, you know, it's great to see people are truly passionate about the relationship with Jesus. And I feel the same way. It's great to have been adopted by this group. For those of you who haven't had a chance to meet me yet, I want to let you know just how excited Robin and I are to be part of VRL. My wife is unfortunately, she caught sick the last couple of days of the move. So she's not with us today, but I'm sure she's looking forward to meeting you. Uh, To us, it's clear God's spirit is moving powerfully here at Valley Real Life. I think one of the central reasons that Valley Real Life keeps the main thing, the main thing. And that's being connected and growing in our relationship with Jesus Christ and as disciples and helping others to do the same. You see, it's not about pretending to be religious. That's not what we do here. But it's about being intentional, relational, and real as we go hard after Jesus together. So for me, I'm not only excited to be here, but I can't wait to see what God's going to do here at BRL in the future. Personally, for those of you who don't know me well, I am need deep in God's grace. The age of 23, God delivered me from addiction and immorality. He healed our marriage and He gave meaning to my life in serving Jesus and others for the last 35 years. This year, um, the the Lord has done miracles in my life. I got to tell you, um, in Robbins, this year we celebrate 45 years of marriage. God also blessed us with an amazing son who we adopted at birth. His name's Ian, who's now 25. He's married to our amazing daughter-in-law, Sarah. And uh, we're the beneficiaries of the most amazing granddaughter in the world. So Rob and I are both looking forward to getting to know all of you better and serving and worshiping with you in the future. So this week, we're finishing up our series on good grief. We're focusing on how to recognize And properly grieve loss in our lives, but also how to come alongside others with the heart of Jesus as they go through their grief process. It was pointed out last week that grief itself is not bad, but unfortunately, we're not good at it. We're bad at dealing with grief and loss in our own lives. And quite honestly, I'm no different. For the most part, I think most most of us have a natural inclination to confine grief to the death of someone or something that we love. If you've just recently lost someone or you're going in the midst of that grief process of someone you've loved, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. I really am. And I know there's nothing I can say that will make that better. But hopefully you'll listen and God can use what we talk about. But I need to tell you that we need to grieve and that grief goes beyond death. It could be the death of a dream. It could be the death of of a relationship or a way of life, or even the way we wish things could be. You see, each one of us creates a picture of the way we want the world to be in our mind. It's based on our hopes, our desires, our expert, our expectations. For me, my world looks like a tropical beach with clear, um, clear water and sand and palm trees, yet it's an illusion. It's a, it's a cartoon picture. It's a figment of my imagination. And reality quite often looks different. It looks like this picture of a barren tree standing alone in a field. It represents all that we experience in living as fallen people in a fallen world. It's subject to disease and death and selfishness, natural disasters and war. And it represents our sense of loss, powerlessness, hopelessness, and frustration. The greater the distance between our picture and the way we want it to be, and the way it is, it, it determines a greater sense of loss. It's not that God doesn't want us to have dreams and aspirations in life, but he also doesn't want us to ignore reality because it's in our recognition that the world is broken that we're encouraged to come to the Lord. Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. "They are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope but we're also instructed to recognize when we're experiencing loss to bring it to the Lord and grieve honestly. The book of Joel, we're told to give him our hearts, to come with fasting and weeping and mourning. It's in these moments of loss that we can feel all alone, separated from God and in our relationships with others. Psalms 22, 1 through 2, it tells us, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. And it's unfortunate because we've all been culturally conditioned to, excuse me, asthma, not not COVID. We've all been conditioned to ignore loss, and so many times we don't recognize it when it's happening. And it happens much more frequently then we realize, and none of us is immune. For example, my son, Ian, who we adopted, he's one of the greatest joys in my life. We adopted him, as I said, from birth in 1997, and he was just an amazing kid. He was just a cute kid. But he's also been incredibly independent and strong-willed. And I really enjoyed being his dad. I really enjoyed having fun and exploring new things with him, teaching us new things. But like with most kids, at adolescence, the hormones seeped in. And that cute little boy who had an independent, strong will, he grew horns, and he loved to stick them in my side occasionally. You know what I mean? And the disrespect and rebellion increased over the years, and it led to some serious conflicts between us. And then one such occasion, in his senior year of high school, we got into one of these arguments where we were raging at each other. And in the heat of the moment, he yelled out, Dad! Dad, why don't you just treat me like an adult? And I went, great question. I said, let's take a minute. Let's take a break. Let me pray on this and think about it. So we got to back, back together after about 30 minutes or so, and I said, son, sit down. I said, when you were a little boy and you were, you were born, they allowed me to feed you your first bottle. And in the dimly corner of Evergreen Hospital, I fed you your first bottle and your eyes met mine and I knew I could step in front of a bus for you. I said, when you were a little kid, you were like eight months and you were sitting up on the arm of the chair, or the, the couch, and I was laying on the floor and you got this toothless grin and you looked at me and it's like, you wanted to pin me to the ground, but you trusted me to catch you and you jumped off the arm of the couch. I said, the first time, or, uh, first time, uh, w- first time since when you were a baby, we used to cut the grass together on the lawn tractor. And as you grew, you got older and older, and it became too heavy for me to hold you. But, but, you know, you would fall asleep in my arms as we cut the grass on the lawn tractor. I remember the first time we went sledding, we caught three foot of air, and I thought mom was going to kill us. <laughs> I just remember teaching a snorkel in Maui when you were seven years old, holding your hand and going over the reef, pointing out fish. It was truly a beautiful moment. I remember all the times we slept outside together. I remember the first time we slept outside in our backyard in Leavenworth. And I said, you were so concerned that something was going to get you. Dad, if a mountain lion comes down, you'll rescue me, right? (laughs) I remember all the water fights we have. I remember all the backpack trips and kayak trips we had. And you asked me why I don't treat you like an adult. And I think that's a a great question. I said, son... You're going to make an amazing man someday. You're in transition, though. You're not really living at home, and you're not really, you're not, you're not um, living. You're not living on your own. I said, so you're not really there, but you are going to make an amazing man. But what I just came to realize is, Ian the boy no longer exists. He no longer exists. And I said, it's like something has died. It's like you're never Ian the boy is never coming back. But I don't have any memories of Ian the man. To replace them, and I said, "It's like, like mom and I are going through this grief and loss process." And I said, "I'm grieving the loss that the little boy that I knew will never be coming back." and He looked at me, he had tears in his eyes, and said, "Dad, I get it." Friends, we've all been trained to be strong, to suppress those bad feelings, and to uh, view them as warning signs that take action so we can avoid physical, emotional, and mental consequences rather than acknowledging we're in pain. And it's my experience, there are really only two kinds of people. There are those that are weak and know they're weak, and there are those who think they're strong and are actually weak. Sadly, research bears out that minimizing loss and the need to grieve has tragic consequences, higher rates of anxiety, high blood pressure, heart disease, depression, mental health issues, addictions, and suicide. So a challenge I'd like to throw out today for everyone as we're finishing up this series, let's slow down. Let's take time to reflect on those areas that we are experiencing loss and need to grieve or areas that maybe we've missed and are impacting us before we go on to try to help others. Because if we do, having done that, then we can learn how to appropriately stand alongside others as they're experiencing loss in their own lives. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 3-4 says this, all praise to God the father of our lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others when they were troubled uh, when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. Friends, I can't emphasize enough the importance of learning how to address grief and loss issues in our own life first before attempting to help others. Because you see, we can't go places with people we ourselves have not traveled traveled, or can't even fathom how to get there. The short answer to addressing our grief and grief in our lives is exactly what was pointed out last week. What God wants for us to do is he wants us to enter into deep, intimate relationship with him, that we would be in tune with his spirit, that we would allow him to bring conviction, comfort, initiate healing, And empowers his agents of his grace. And here's the secret, friends. God always wants to do something for us, in us, and through us that only he can do. Because then who gets the credit? He does. So as was noted last week, grief is good as long as it causes us to go to the Lord. So how do we recognize grief and loss issues in our lives? Again, I want to point back to our need to be in constant relationship with Jesus Christ. In a book titled Calvary Road by Roy Hessian, he describes our daily walk with Jesus as one where we're walking side by side throughout every moment of our day. As we walk side by side with Jesus, we feel security, we feel peace, we feel safe. Yet, there are things that will distract us in our relationship with Jesus. For example, participating in sin. Jesus will not participate in sin with us. Another would be fear and anxiety. The Bible tells us perfect love casts all, all fear. Perfect love is found as we connect with Jesus. So in order to experience that, we need to walk away and be preoccupied by fear. So Hessian goes on to point out that when we feel separation from Jesus, that should cause us to stop, reflect, turn back, and start walking side by side with him once again. So how does this apply to grief and loss? When we experience loss, we frequently avoid those feelings associated with loss, instantly trying to figure out how we're going to get through that loss in our own understanding and our own strength. Can you relate to what I'm saying? If you can't, let me ask this. Have you ever faced a difficult situation and asked, God, where are you? As though he was off in Albuquerque someplace, right? But scripture reminds us, it says, Draw near to God, and, I, and he will draw near to you. James 4 Be sure this, I am always with you, Jesus said, even to the end of the age. Matthew twenty eight twenty. Philippians 4 7 reminded the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But the problem is, I don't know about you, but I want all the answers to have my peace. But it tells us the peace of God surpasses all understanding, including our own. So when something tragic happens, we should remember God is with us amidst our pain. And as was mentioned last week, his desire for us to come to him in heartfelt lament, honestly, openly, acknowledging the world is broken, this is not fair, to seek comfort and help that only he can afford. Interestingly, there's been quite a bit of research in the area of grieving loss. It's through the years... And through these years of research, what they discovered is everyone consistently goes through various stages in the grief process. It should be noted that these stages are not remedies and that simply knowing them won't take away your sense of loss any more than knowing where the gym is will get you in shape. It's also important to remember that everybody moves at their own pace. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes three steps forward, two steps back. And some people are capable of moving through this process smoother than others. Let's take a look at these stages of grief together. The first one is denial. Denial is when we close our eyes to any evidence of a problem. And we pretend that nothing has happened or is happening. We tell ourselves, this can't be happening or things are not that bad. Um, I'll, I'll get through it. Friends, we're only as sick as our secrets. We're only as sick as our secrets. Jeremiah 23, 24 tells us, can anyone hide from me? Am I not everywhere in all the heaven and the earth? We need to get honest and we need to connect, get connected when we're in denial. Because it's in the in the context of healthy connection that we give people permission to speak in our lives, or we can allow, we can speak into their lives as well. The second stage is anger. And anger is where bottled up feelings explode or we project blame at some target. Typically someone near to us, God, or even it could be ourselves. I have a friend, uh, Cheryl, who I met a number of years ago. Cheryl came to me after about nine months of uncontrollable grief over the death of her husband. And she was just like at that point where every moment of every day she was sobbing. She was literally incapacitated. And so what I came to find out is, Cheryl had asked her husband to put up Christmas decorations in the yard. So he went up and got his stepladder went up into the attic to get the, the, the decorations out of the attic. And what had happened is he stood on the top letter, top, uh, step of the stepladder and he fell and hit his head on the garage floor and basically died over the next three days. And Cheryl, we got into lots and lots of counseling and, and hours of conversation. And one day she said to me, she said, I am so angry. And I said, well, Cheryl, what are you angry at? I'm so mad at my husband. Why did he step up on that top step of that stepladder? Didn't he know what could happen, that I'd be left all alone? I said, well, who else are you mad at, Cheryl? And she said, I'm so mad at God. God could have prevented that. Now I'm left all alone. I said, is there anybody else you're mad at? She said, yes. And she was really quiet. I'm mad at myself, because if I never would have asked him to go up on and get those decorations and set up the house, he'd still be alive. She'd been blaming herself, and as she worked through the forgiveness process, she found healing and comfort. The word says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. And it will give a foothold to the devil. It will cause us to question God's goodness and his mercy. The next phase is bargaining. This is where we attempt to reverse our circumstances. Using my earlier analogy of the tropical island and the barren tree, what it is, it's an attempt for me to do something to get back my illusion of the way the world should be. The key here is to let go of the picture and the way of the way we want it to be and trust God to create a new picture for us. Once we do, we will be able to see leaves form on that barren tree, blossoms, eventually fruit, and the whole scene begins to change. The Lord says, For I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make a pathway through the wilderness. I will create rivers in the dry wasteland, Isaiah 43:19. The next phase is depression, And that's an incapacitating ability to function, leading to isolation and withdrawal. The psalmist says, I cry to the Lord. I call and call to him, oh, that he would listen. I am in deep trouble and in need of much help. All day long I pray, lifting my hands to heaven, pleading. There can be no joy for me until he acts. I think of God and moan, overwhelmed with longing for his help. I cannot sleep until you act. I am too distressed to even pray. Psalm 77, 1 through 4. Now, depression has many causes physiological, chemical imbalances, genetic predisposition. And I want to tell you that if you're experiencing clinical depression, there's nothing spiritual about avoiding seeing a doctor, okay? Let me explain why. God has created our bodies with chemicals to combat depression. But what happens left untreated? Your body can only produce those chemicals so fast, and eventually you start to build up tolerance to them like any other chemical. So you may not be able to to, um, have those chemicals pour into your system fast enough, and that's what leads to clinical depression and and being incapacitated. You may have to go to a doctor, you may have to get on medication, at least temporarily, to bring you to a point where you're able to function and move forward in your healing process. The second thing you should know about depression is it always tends to have it's catalyzed by some sense of powerlessness. So in the case of a child dying, it's natural for the parents to feel depressed because they couldn't stop it nor could they reverse it, okay? There are other times where options may be available but may be getting ignored because they, we can't see beyond our immediate circumstances. One such story is uh, I, I had a chance to do jury duty with David Sims, which was a former Seahawk. He's one of our earlier premier running backs. And David uh, played three seasons for the Seahawks and in his third season, he took a, a stinger uh, injury to the neck. When he took that stinger injury to the neck, what happened is he could never play football again. And I had to ask David, I said, David, what, what happened? I mean, you played football, how did you process that? Because that was your whole life. He says, yeah, it was. By the time I was a little kid, I played football. I was in junior high school, high school, college. I was a star. He said, I got in the, into the NFL, and I was doing amazing. And he said, that is all I knew myself to be. And it took counseling for me to realize that I had options, that I was more than just being a football player, that I had options. And as I started to explore options, I found freedom. The next phase is, the final phase is acceptance, and this is where someone is ready to actively be involved in accepting the situation for what it is. Freedom is a process, it is not a destination. And we also have to remember that acceptance doesn't mean you like what you're experiencing, but it's a conscious decision to move forward trusting God to comfort you and to work in ways that you can't fathom in the moment. Now, m- many of us know the story of the prodigal son. I'm just going to briefly kind of go through it for those of you who don't know it. There's a father. He's a wealthy man. He has two sons. The younger son comes to his father and says, give me my share of the estate and all that belongs to me. So the father went ahead, distributes his estate among the two sons, and gives them their inheritance. And shortly after, the younger son says, out of here, gone. And he takes off for wild living and stuff like that. Now, eventually the son comes back and there's re- reuniting. But in that moment, we don't realize the backdrop of that story prior to him leaving. We don't see his son's discontent with his lot in life or the conflicts or the arguments that they were having over that discontent. We don't understand all the circumstances and how they transpired. Can you imagine the intense sense of rejection and grief and loss that the prodigal's father felt? I mean, I shared you the story of my son Ian and Ian the boy. This father probably possessed those very same memories and he probably was so heartbroken his son just wanted to abandon and leave. We know from verse 24 of the passage that the father believed his son to be dead. How difficult would it have been for that father to accept his son's decision, but he did. You know it didn't feel good. You know that he didn't like it, but he had to come to a point of acceptance. And when he did, God was able to do something miraculous. So what are some keys to, key things to remember as we stand with others amidst loss in our life? There's some key things. I think it's important for us to get our mind around them. This video speaks to a lot of them. Let's take a look at it. So, it's not easy sitting with other people in their pain, is it? Do you remember why? Because we're uncomfortable, because we've been culturally trained to avoid feeling bad. We want to fix things and move on. We're also afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing, so many times we don't do anything at all. Most of us have probably heard the expression, no one cares how much you know until they know much you care. Galatians 6.2 says, Share each other's burdens, in this way obey the law of Christ. The greatest gift... You can give someone is simply being present who is hurting and in a listening ear. We're not there to judge, fix or try to lift their spirits, but simply to listen and pray for God's comfort over that person. I had a friend of Pete, a friend named Pete, a number of years ago, who I worked with in Leavenworth, and I was visiting a, another friend in a hospital in Wenatchee following a surgery, and I got word that a guy, this guy who I worked with he was there, and his kidneys were shutting down, and he was going to die. He was basically waiting to die. I went to his room, and clearly Pete was depressed and broken. I knew he knew I was a Christian, and he was a professing atheist. And I spent quite a bit of time with him, and at some point, I said, do you mind if I pray for you? With nothing left to lose, Pete said, well, I can't hurt. And I prayed, and when I, we stopped praying, T- Pete had tears in his eyes. But I left, and I didn't choose to follow up. Eventually, Rob and I moved out of the area, came back. We were visiting Wenatchee about five, six, seven years later, and I heard this guy yelling from across the parking lot, Drew, Drew, and it was Pete. And he ran across the parking lot, put his arms around me, threw them around He said, thank you for praying for me. God healed me. He said, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I can't thank you enough. You were the only person that came to visit me. Friends, God can use us in simple ways. And this is where ministries like Grief Share, Celebrate Recovery, Divorce Care, and life groups can be so helpful because these are groups of communities of people embraced doing life together and they're encouraging one another amidst all life struggles. So friends, there's so much more to share on this topic, but our time is limited. I can't emphasize enough that grief is good as long as it drives us in a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And in doing so, God is faithful to do something in us, for us, and through us that only he can do. Perhaps today you realize you haven't dealt with some area of loss in your life or you just feel stuck. Perhaps you're seeking wisdom on how to be there for, for someone who you're close to or you may be even be in that place ready to accept Jesus for the first time or you're feeling tonight you want to be, or today you want to be baptized. If so, I encourage you to go to the cross. There are people there who are there for you to listen, pray, and answer questions. The key thing is that you know you're loved. You're loved by us here at VRL, and you're loved by God. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here together with my new forever family, Lord. I pray blessings over them. I pray that you help every person. Uh, God, I pray that you help them all. To, we all would take this topic seriously we grieve loss well, that we bring it to you, Jesus, that we be listening ears for people and we stop trying to fix it, but lead them into your presence because you're the God that could do something for them, in them, and through them that only you could do. So Jesus, I thank you for this time in your name. Amen.